Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is Joseph Edwin, expert partner at Bain & Company and also investment director at Bikeworks, which is part of the Social Business Trust. Joseph is an experienced CIO and technology-led transformation executive with over 24 years of global experience under his belt, managing technology within complex organizations and delivering very large technology-led transformation programs. From starting out in Silicon Valley through to uh, traveling and working in Australia, moving to the Nordics and now into the UK, Joseph had worked for companies such as Commonwealth Bank and also Nordea, now, um, like I said, at Bain, uh, helping uh, very large enterprise clients deliver these uh, transformation projects. I am very excited to learn more about this experience uh, and offer and share insight that Joseph um, has experienced along his journey, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Nice to meet you, Joseph. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the opportunity, Craig. It is my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to unpacking some of that introduction. So can you just, from a high-level perspective, give us you know, an overview of your career highlights? Great. So, Craig, I grew up in India where I finished my university, and then I ended up in Wisconsin in the middle of a very cold winter in 1996. And I'd never seen snow before in my life, so it was quite a eye-opening experience, I have to say. So this being the mid-'90s, it was when the Internet was starting to take shape, And my job was to run the website for a university in Wisconsin. This then led me to a couple of stints with startups in Silicon Valley, a fantastic experience, I might add, which was followed by 15 years in Australia, where I first got into banking and worked for Commonwealth Bank of Australia, also known as CBA. At CBA, I was a tech executive in a variety of roles, mainly focused on technology-enabled transformation. And one highlight of my career there was transitioning Comsec, which is Australia's largest online share trading platform, to public cloud back in 2014. Subsequent to that, I went to Copenhagen to work for Nordea Bank and head up their core systems transformation for over six years. And then I joined Bain & Company in London mid last year, where I'm a partner in the financial services and tech practices and focus on most aspects of technology in financial services, but primarily on large and complex transformation journeys. Wow, that's quite a a journey. So India to US to Australia through to Europe and now in the UK. Wow. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. They, you know, it's often compared to the Wild West in terms of startups and, and technology. Do you have any stories or moments that stand out there or any special memories? Absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, going into the valley for my interview and sort of walking around the heart of Silicon Valley, seeing all these companies I'd only heard about was obviously a very, very fascinating experience to start with. In the late 90s, Silicon Valley was in the dot-com frenzy, as you would uh, recall, and I guess most of our listeners would be familiar with that. 
It was really interesting. Anybody could get a job and the salaries there were going through the roof. You know, there are literally stories every day about people with zero expertise in technology moving to the valley, getting, you know, $100,000 plus a year salaries with, you know, basic experience. But the reality was, you know, the basics of business were absent in many of these startups that had been built up uh, under the dot-com umbrella. You know, everything literally became a dot-com business. But when the, when the music stopped, as you know, and the bus came, the real businesses versus those that were just simply pipe dreams became very obvious. And I was there at that, at that time during the dot-com bust in my second stint in the Valley. And you could literally see the Valley emptying out, you know, from spending two hours commuting from San Francisco into, say, Santa Clara, which is like a 50-mile distance every day to now taking 35, 40 minutes, right? I mean, it was that stark, that difference. And one of the biggest failures at that time was a company called eToys. And again, some of some of our listeners may be familiar with them. This was a toy business that just said, we'll sell toys online, right? And the amount of money that was pumped into this company was amazing. And I'll be honest, I was stupid enough to buy the shares in this firm and I lost all of it, right? The company went completely out of business. So fascinating time. And I guess, you know, some people would say we're seeing some parallels now with what's happening in, in the tech space again. I think the industry has learned a lot from it, but there's yet an opportunity for businesses to really focus on the bottom line and establish resilient businesses that will really grow with this new trend that we're seeing with Web 3.0. Otherwise, we may see a repeat of the same. Yeah. I mean, do you think eToys would be a successful business now? In terms of the, the climate and the e-commerce? and yeah, yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, I don't know, fully understand the business model there. I mean, I guess they were replicating the success of Amazon, like many others were, you know, selling books online, you know, sell toys online, sell whatever online. But I think there are many other factors to be considered for any business to be successful. You know, customer behavior is probably one of the most important things to, to really understand. You know, why would someone buy your product online? Is it really compelling? And how does it differentiate from uh, in-person experience in a store, right? And if you can replicate something which which makes sense, then I think you will be successful, right? So really focus on the, on the customer, I think, is, is, is the important message there. Yeah. And then you've done a lot of traveling, as we've already highlighted. Are there, are there any places in particular that you see as hubs for, for tech that people can should move to or if they wanted to get into tech should go to? I think Silicon Valley still has a lot of cachet. It's the place where a lot of the innovation is happening, despite all the hype that we hear about. And yes, you know, San Francisco is no longer the same city that it was when I, when I was living there with all the things that we hear about it in, in the media. But it still is a hub. I mean, the, it attracts some of the world's best talent. And I think being surrounded by that much intelligence and experience is really amazing for anyone starting up a career in tech. But I think over the years, we've seen many other hubs open up globally. And I think New York and London are both really fantastic places for tech and particularly fintech. But then going back to my recent experience in, in the Nordics, I think Stockholm and Copenhagen are also hotbeds of innovation, not just in the tech space, but other, other aspects, other industries. And I say, and some of my friends also say, I mean, both cities kick well above their weight, right? I mean, they have such amazing companies that have been founded in those two locations. Spotify, obviously, coming out of Stockholm, Lego coming out of Denmark, and there are many other success stories. So I think, you know, all of those cities are fantastic places to go. I have not been to Israel, but I know Tel Aviv is an absolute fantastic place for innovation as well. and love to love to go there at some point. 
But then, of course, if you are a person who loves warm weather and beaches, then I would not look past Sydney. And that's really a stunning place to live from a lifestyle point of view, but also a place where there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out, amazing companies. And also many of the incumbents, the banks and other industries are spending a lot of money on using tech to grow their business, drive digital transformation of their business and create new business models. Great. I mean, yeah, I'd love to go explore some of those uh, from a tourist and from a, a professional perspective. So tell us then, moving into sort of what you're currently doing in the UK now for Bain, can you tell us what your, your role entails and, and what's your sort of day-to-day? I'm guessing it changes a lot though, but yeah, if you could do a summary, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, firstly, for those that don't know Bain Company, we are a premier management consultancy. And we work alongside our clients as one team with a shared ambition to achieve extraordinary results. Many of the global leaders that are clients come to us to solve challenges in strategy, marketing, organizational models, operations, information technology, more and more, and digital transformation strategy, sustainability, which is another very fast-moving business for us, corporate finance. And of course, a very important part of what we do is mergers and acquisitions and sort of helping private equity firm due diligence and other stuff like that. And this is across all industries and geographies. In my role, I primarily advise executive management and boards of our clients on how to successfully navigate the tech-enabled um, transformation. Um, we have developed various tools over time that really help us accelerate transformation in a very structured fashion. And we deploy the best of our best talent from across the globe to help our clients. You know, I'm currently working with clients in Mexico, in the Middle East, Canada. So, you know, we really assemble the best people we have with the right talent to advise our clients and help them succeed in, in whatever transformation journey that they're taking. I also advise our clients on tech strategy, operating model, and cost transformation as well. Okay. And then those larger projects that you're working on, are you being brought in on a sort of proactive or is it more of a reactive basis? And I guess, are you there to sort of save the the transformation project or is it more of a strategic decision to bring you in, you know, before the, the transformation project started? Yeah, yeah. We, we see both scenarios. And of course, you know, we would really prefer that our clients bring us in at the start to help set things up well and avoid very costly mistakes. And our research shows that well over 70% of transformation programs either do not succeed at all or significantly underdeliver on the original ambition. So our job and our real goal is to help our clients avoid being part of that statistic, right? But yeah, I mean, we, we see equally, you know, sometimes boards or management call us and say, look, you know, the program is not going very well. Can you help set things back on track? Sometimes we get called in right at the start when a big decision has been taken and they want want us to advise them on how to set things up because perhaps they haven't got the deep expertise in running such large transformations internally. And that often is the case. You know, most organizations don't have many, many years of battle scars on their backs to sort of have having done complex transformations. There's not many people like that that have done it successfully. So I think bringing people like us in who are practitioners and have a very structured methodical approach we can deploy together with the client, come in there, help set things up. And one thing we do is teach the client how to succeed. You know, 
we don't go in there to sort of come and run the projects. That's not our game. We're too expensive, I guess, to to be offering that service. But we will definitely help figure out what, what are the missing ingredients in your transformation journey? How do you get those things on under control? What are the structures you should have? How do you sort of reset your ways of working if that's not panning out, for example? But more importantly, you know, making sure that there is absolute 100% strong business sponsorship and focus from the top management on transformations like this, because these big transformations demand that sort of attention from senior management and making sure the right framework from a governance point of view is in place, the right sort of reviews are being done on a periodic basis, the right KPIs are being measured and reported on a regular basis. These are key ingredients in success and making sure that they're all in place is what we mainly do. So I like the way you phrase that there, sort of your battle scars. So let's talk about your transformation battle scars and some of your history, because I think some of your story has obviously enabled you to get to a position that you're at today to advise these these senior executives. So looking back at sort of Commonwealth Bank, what convinced you to adopt the public cloud? Because you, you adopted it very early there at Commonwealth Bank. And was there a specific moment or an event that made you realize that cloud was the best way forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I think I would say 2010 onwards, you know, cloud was starting to become quite a regular part of the vernacular on technology. We had a very forward-thinking CIO at that time, Michael Hart, who really sort of changed the game quite a lot in the in the tech space, especially in banking in Australia. And he was a very vocal advocate of adopting the cutting-edge technology that cloud was bringing, bringing to the table. If I take the ComSec example very specifically, I think three things come to mind. Firstly, there was an opportunity for us to change the game around the cycles of hardware refresh. And most CIOs would be very familiar with this, which is, you know, you have a lot of infrastructure that is old, aging, cost has been depreciated, but now you need to upgrade that. And each time you try and do an upgrade, it's a very expensive exercise, right? And then you sweat that asset out for seven, eight years, whatever the case may be in your cycle, and then you start that again. So it's these lumpy investments that happen periodically, which you have to plan for, and sometimes they come in at the wrong time. And then fighting for budgets and whatnot inside an organization is tough. And then it's not uncommon for organizations to delay this. And then eventually what happens is you see a failure and then that triggers a, okay, let's spend the money to fix it. You don't want to get into that space, right? So the whole idea of an evergreen technology, I think, was was part of the thought process there. We saw an opportunity, secondly, to transform cost of our infrastructure worth millions, right? I mean, there was we were spending a lot of money on infrastructure that had been built up for when the stock market was really pumping, right? And Comsec being the largest sort of trading venue in Australia with over 50% market share gets a lot of activity. And a volatile day would mean we see, you know, two, three, four times the amount of trades on an average day. And the hardware needs to be able to cater for that. And pre-cloud, you'd build up infrastructure to support that sort of spike so that you don't go out of sort of, I mean, your, your platform keeps running. What cloud gave us the opportunity was to deal with that seasonality without having to pay a fixed cost constantly for something that's not being utilized, right? The whole idea of being able to scale in an elastic fashion was very attractive for us. And given trading being a very sort of episodic business, you know, some days a certain news item like what's happening this morning triggers a certain sell-off or a massive buying opportunity, people stream into the market, your platform need to be able to handle that, Right. So we saw a huge opportunity to take fixed cost out and convert that to a variable cost base 
to handle these sort of spikes that we see periodically. And then thirdly, I would say the timing was great because after GFC, there was a big lull in the stock markets. You know, volumes were down 60 70%. And we were sitting on all this infrastructure, which was not being utilized, coming up for a refresh. So we felt it was a right time from a risk perspective to go on this journey, convert our infrastructure to cloud, reap the benefits of that, and also position ComSec from a growth point of view, cost point of view for the future. And it's been amazing. Great. And then you uh, you speak of your time in the Nordics quite fondly. I know you worked, you know, you did a lot of work with Nordea, especially around navigating a, a core banking modernization. Can you tell us a little bit about that, you know, biggest challenges, wins, and, and how you use agile methodology? Absolutely. You know, any such large transformation is very complex. And as, as I was saying earlier, requires a lot of focus and attention from the organization, particularly for management. And keeping the attention of management that's focused on running the bank, running the business, while you're undertaking this very long-running process of transforming the organization is a tricky balance to achieve in most places. You know, luckily, we were in the, in the midst of a broader transformation culturally as well as an, as an organization. So for a period of time, that attention was, was definitely there. In the midst of all that, how do you, you know, sustain energy of hundreds of people that are going through this process of delivering the change and how do you keep the interest of the organization and, as I said, the management, a key ingredient in my view, and this is part of the playbook that we promote with our clients now at Bain as well, is you know focus on breaking your journey into smaller iterations of success, right? And at the end of each iteration, you deliver something of value. And when I say value, true value in the sense of something that the customer would experience or something the employees would experience you know, as a benefit from having delivered this transformation. And each time you deliver a successful outcome, you're basically buying the right to continue the program, continue the journey, and you earn the trust and you're building a stronger foundation on which you can keep iterating and adding more and more successes on top. So my advice to most organizations that are undertaking such transformations would be don't go for the big outcome at the end of five, six years. Instead, break the journey, this long marathon into shorter let's call it sprints even, borrowing a term from the Agile playbook. And the idea at the end of each sprint is that there's something that you can see tangibly delivered. Applying Agile in this context is also not easy. We were at the start of a journey where no one, as far as I know, had undertaken a core systems transformation using Agile at that point in time. So a lot of people were skeptical about that. But I'd also gone through a very similar journey in my previous bank, Commonwealth Bank, and there we had applied a traditional waterfall approach to deliver the core transformation. And I could see the benefit we could gain from breaking the journey into smaller iterations, de-risk the whole journey. You know, you plan at two speeds effectively. You're planning for the immediate sort of five, six months period ahead of you at a very detailed level. And then you also plan long range. You know, what's your roadmap looking like? What are some of those moments of truth that will happen along the way? What are some of your big dependencies with other change activities that are underway inside the organization that you need to plan around? All these need to be taken into account. And I think getting that balance of short-term planning and long-term planning right took us a few rounds of iterations, and we learned a lot from that. Changing the way of working for five, 600 people to all operate in a certain rhythm is very difficult. And you know, we had periods when there were people who were very textbook agile, we should do agile this way, versus agile gives you a playbook, a series of ideas on how you should operate. It's not prescriptive, right? 
And the, the trick is in the word itself, agile. And you have to have an agile, adaptive mindset when you're implementing the, the methodology as well, because you keep learning from every step and you have to keep adjusting. And it's you know not different from sailing, for example, where you know, you're sailing and the wind is blowing in a certain direction, you tack in a certain way, and suddenly the wind changes. You have to make some slight adjustments. You're constantly trimming the sails to keep the boat moving forward. And it's exactly the same. You have to keep trimming and adjusting constantly because you'll keep learning from every step that you take. And the mistake a lot of organizations make is, this is agile, we have to use this framework, we must stick within the framework, and there's no flexibility, and that's completely wrong. I think that's a wrong mindset to bring into an agile implementation, and I think creates a lot of detractors as opposed to supporters. Yeah, I mean, you touched on management a couple of times there in terms of the, the answer. And I think management fluctuates a little bit at Nordea while you were working. I think they had three CEO changes. So there's a lot of turbulence around, I'm sure, during that time with all those changes. How do you keep your eye on the ball? And what were the challenges for you when a new manager would come in or a new CEO would come in? And you know, do you have to sort of repitch in this transformation idea? Or is it something they just go, right, we just keep on going with that until it's done? What was the sort of picture you could you could paint around that? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question, Craig. And I think, as you know, every time leadership changes, there's new ideas, new ways of thinking, new strategies, new objectives that, that are set. And of course, you know, it's not unnatural. It's, it's completely valid. And we experienced the same during the journey that I was at at Nordea. And yeah, I mean, one of the things you have to do on a journey that is going to take many years to complete is to go back and keep reminding why did we start this journey? You know, what's the reason why we're undertaking a core systems transformation? Keep reminding people about that because as time passes, the corporate memory starts getting diluted more and more. People forget why you started the journey. Five years down the track, people are like, oh, we had, we're still not finished yet. You know, what's going on? And maybe we should do something different. And people want to genuinely try and help, but often forget why you started this journey. So going back to the why is extremely important. I think that's part of the the playbook that every leader should use you know always start with a why you know when you undertake a change undertake any transformation be very clear on the purpose behind your transformation align everybody inside the organization particularly senior management around that because if you have people that are sort of thinking differently about you know why you're doing that then you constantly get asked questions being challenged on the approach you're taking Perhaps the scope gets changed. People say, oh, maybe we should do something differently or do some, build a bank on the side, for example, in a core systems transformation. That's a common thing people ask, right? And bring it back to the why. We started this transformation journey because X, Y, Z. You know, in our case, you know, the, the systems were old. We had four of everything, one in every country. Consolidating to create a common platform was a key reason why we were doing this. Addressing resilience issues, you know, stability issues of old platforms, continuity of technology because, you know, the technology is very old and there's not many people left who know how to operate this anymore. So how do you provide long-term sustainable platforms on which the bank can grow and, and digitalize, right? That was the purpose behind it. So it's really about protecting your current business, stabilizing things to let it grow in the future. So going back to that, you know, always again and again was a key part of that. I guess personally for me, I would say two characteristics, tenacity and resilience. I was there for a purpose, which is help the bank succeed in this transformation journey. And I did not feel that until that is in a very good shape, I'm in a place to move on to something else because I've, I didn't want to leave with a sense of I haven't finished the finished the journey or didn't set it up correctly. So that's me. You know, that's how I operate. And since the objective hadn't changed and there's still a lot to do, 
didn't matter that the management or the organization around me was changing. The task at hand was still still valid. So let's keep going. Plus, you know, I felt that I'd convinced several people that I work with elsewhere to come and join me in helping Nodea navigate this complex transformation. And I couldn't just leave them hanging, right? I mean, there's a sense of loyalty towards people that you work with closely um, and you build these strong relationships and you keep working together in other places. And you're very well placed to answer this question because you have grown up and worked and traveled in so many different areas. What's the sort of challenges around culture that you see in organizations? Are there any, you know, the differences between the US and the Australians and the Europeans when it comes to transformation? And are there any similarities or or stark differences? Hmm. Absolutely. I think to not recognize the cultural differences will be foolish of anybody going into these sort of settings. And I guess I have had the privilege to work in, as you said, you know, now four different work cultures globally, the US, Australia, Nordics, and the Nordics was not one culture, it was four, right? Four countries, four set of values in, in many ways, right? And then now the UK. And more and more, what we see is organizations extremely diverse. It's not like, you know, you go into a UK culture and you go into an organization here. There are many cultures coming together. So I think the whole definition of culture in that sense is also changing quite rapidly. And my view is I think the best way for organizations as well as individuals going into organizations to succeed in these is, you know, be humble. Firstly, as an individual coming into an organization to drive a transformation, don't come in with a sense that you know all the answers, right? That's the wrong thing to do. Yes, you have been brought in with the experience you have, but that experience is only valid as far as the context is recognized and respected. So spend your first few months really understanding the organization, meet as many people as you can to start to understand what's going on, why you know are things the way they are, and then start gently prodding them in different directions and say, have you considered this? You know, And one phrase I learned in the Nordics, which they use very uh, interestingly, is, you know, what do I know? And so preface something with an idea that you might be putting on the table saying, hey, what do I know? But have you considered this, right? And I think that disarms people, lets people drop their guard and be willing to listen to you. And if you now broaden that across an entire organization, if you consider all the people that you want to rally in a different direction, potentially, you can't be directive anymore. And this is what the, the Nordics is particularly good at. I think it's a very egalitarian bottom-up culture where, you know, value systems of the people individually is respected a lot. And there's a lot of room for people to discuss and agree. Yes, that does create a small problem, which is it takes quite a long time to get people to align. At some point, you have to pull the trigger and say, you're moving forward with the change, right? But give space to people to figure out their role and pathway inside that transformation. Again, start with the why. I mean, especially the advice to CEOs and leaders of of organizations would be, please describe to the people, why are you doing this transformation? What's in it for the organization? What's in it for the customer? What's in it for the employee? And how does the work that the employee is doing impact that in a positive way? What will be at the end of the, the rainbow, so to speak? What's the pot of gold, right? But make it really tangible because these are people that have lives and they experience maybe your own products. So describe it in a way that they really understand what that transformation will lead to, particularly from their experience point of view. I think that will really make a big difference if you start with a why. Yeah, great. And then let's move on to the future. What's next for transformation? So what do you see as the next big thing 
coming down the line in terms of digital transformation? Are there any technologies that you're excited about or showing a keen interest in? Absolutely. I think firstly, there's still a lot to be done just fixing what's there with all the good stuff that's been developed over the last five, six years, maybe the last decade, getting to a much more digital setup in organizations, journey-led design of your customer experience, I think is is a language that more and more people are starting to use. And it's really about showing empathy. You know, what's the experience you want the customer to have digitally? There's still a lot to be done in that space, even before you start thinking about the new technologies. But since the question is about, you know, where are we heading and what's coming down the pipe, I think artificial intelligence is definitely one thing I'm really, really excited about because it has a lot of applicability to transformation, right? Applying technology to solve complex business problems and let machines sort of make decisions on problems that normally, if a human is doing, is impacted by things like being tired, fatigue, you know, other distractions and whatnot. Machines don't have those problems, right? You program them, you feed them information, and then the artificial intelligence builds its knowledge base over time and gets smart at making decisions. And there is a lot of evidence that AI-based decisions are much, much better and more profitable for organizations than human-made decisions. And we're seeing that already. We've done some work with some banks in, in, in Europe where we deployed models on pricing and found that the model was delivering a much better bottom-line result and a better outcome for the customer than when humans were involved, right? So for me, I think deploying AI in a methodical way is absolutely one of the best things that we should keep watching and looking at investing. And of course, people need to put time into learning about what does it mean? It's a very difficult topic for even the smartest people. I would not profess to understand it very well. There's a lot of statistics and other mathematical models behind it, which I think some people are much better suited to understand. But I think every manager, every executive is obliged to understand what power does that give you as an organization? How can you apply that in your business? How can you make the lives of your customers better? How can you make the lives of your employees better by using technology? So that's definitely one. Second one that that I would say that I'm watching is blockchain and, and that whole space, Web 3.0. It's, it's a very nebulous space, right? I think cryptocurrencies and Bitcoins have obviously gained some notoriety about over the last few years. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that. But the tech industry hasn't done a great job explaining why this is important, how this can really change the game down the future. But it's probably at the same sort of stage that internet was in sort of the, I'd say, mid-90s. You know, it's, it's infrastructure that's been deployed. People don't understand. It. It's very technical. What do we do with this? And there's a lot of other things that have come in, like NFTs, which have created a lot of hype around this, and people trading cryptocurrencies to make a lot of money. Uh, a lot of them have no application, no real value, but hey, you know, the hype is driving it, which is why, as at the start, I was saying, there's a lot of frenzy around some of these things, which remind me of what was happening in the late 90s with dot-com and something for us to be worried about to some extent. But underneath that is a very fantastic technology and capability that I think will change the game, but we have to still watch the space, spend time learning about it, figure out you know, how, how we can apply that in the context of our businesses and take it forward. And I think the third one would be quantum computing. Again, a complex space emerging rapidly, changes are happening, but also a big driver of automation down the future and sort of really speeding this up the pace at which decisions will be made by machines in the future. So combination of AI and quantum computing is going to be a very powerful setup in the future, I think. 
Great. Uh, thanks, Joseph. So, I mean, that's great. We've spoken about um, your past, the future. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, something, I, again, I know you're passionate about, and that's around mentoring. Why did you decide to start mentoring and coaching alongside all these other responsibilities? I'm guessing your, your day is pretty busy. So, you know, how do you find the time and, and what sort of drove you to, to do that? Hmm. That's a great question. Firstly, I think, you know, we leaders have an obligation to nurture the next generation of leaders, right? And especially from the underrepresented groups. In tech, it's well understood, you know, the participation of women, especially at the senior levels, is very low. So how do we nurture the next round, next generation of leaders that is more diverse, especially from a gender point of view in tech, I think is is, is definitely one part of or one aspect of that. I personally get a lot of joy and satisfaction from seeing someone achieve success in their lives. And to have played a small part in that success is even more joyful. And I think you know, there's a lot of experience that I've gained having worked in different cultures, different regions globally, different organizations. And, you know, there's no point holding on to that. I think sharing it widely with people that are curious and have a genuine thirst to learn is a big part of that. And, you know, I sometimes reflect on that. My own journey growing up and the people that have supported me have given me advice and guided me through some of my challenges. I think it's paying that back, you know, paying it forward rather to people that are going to go through the same challenges in their lives and make a great career out of uh, having been led in the right direction by various people. And normally, you know, people that I know are not just seeking mentoring from one person. They're talking to other people. And I encourage that. Take in diverse perspectives. Listen to multiple people. Even people that you don't talk to directly, just listen to what the thought process is. You know, listen to some of these famous personalities in the industry you're interested in and see how they think. That's as much part of creating a, a fully rounded personality and experience versus just one sort of uh, way of thinking. Yeah. And what are the elements sort of your role or your experience would you focus on when you're looking to upskill more junior members? Yeah, I think it really depends upon the individual and the situation. Some need guidance on content. You know, hey, how do I do this? How do I learn about this? How, how do I execute my job better? I want to learn this particular capability. So, you know, that would be quite one case that, that we see. There are others who are looking at guidance or looking for guidance on solving complex issues that I may have dealt with through my career. So I would, in my discussions with them, talk about the situation and what happened, how do I deal with it? And it may not be 100% match in terms of the situation, but you know, a lot of what you do in one situation, you can apply in a very similar other situation as well. So it's about imparting those experiences and battle scars, so to speak, sharing that with people so they can perhaps avoid making the mistakes I've made and have an easier path going forward. And then sometimes it's purely need-based, right? Sometimes we are working on a problem. You know, if I think about my earlier jobs, we've hired some young talent. We're grooming them to become the next set of experts in a particular part of the technology that we were deploying. And there are some really curious people out there. And if you empower them, guide them to learn the right way, then they can be massive assets for you as an organization, but also you'll see them succeed. And that also brings satisfaction. Yeah. And have you got any advice for any sort of aspiring CIOs or, or CTOs or, you know, anyone that's using technology to sort of better their businesses and, and looking to get into the sort of C-suite role? Yeah, look, I think firstly, just focusing technology is going to be detrimental, right? You need to, of course, have your technology chops, as they say. However, for you to really succeed as a CIO, you need to understand the business, right? 
So whichever industry you want to focus on, whether it's banking, whether it's consumer goods, whatever, really learn everything you can learn about that business. Because the more you can speak the language of the business, you understand the drivers for growth, challenges that business faces, customer behaviors, all those things play into how you decide to deploy technology to solve the problems. And if you don't speak the language of the business, it's very difficult, right? You have to really drop the jargon and keep that for your discussions with your own people and really focus on what's the business outcome technology is going to enable, right? That's the language business executives understand. That's how they will engage with you. And that's what's going to make you successful. Yeah. Oh, great advice. And that is a common thing coming through these podcasts, which is great. Great. So we do have a couple of minutes left, Joe. So I think let's move on to our final round. And perhaps we should move us to the front because this is where we, we look at what makes you a bit more human and, and gives you a bit adds a bit more personality behind the guest on the show. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Just answer them. It's just getting to know you a bit better. And you know, it just adds a little bit of color into the show. But let's talk about, do you have a sort of a guilty technology pleasure? I've got a very nice pair of Bose noise-canceling headphones that I bought when I was living in Copenhagen. I was flying around a lot for work. That really helps me drown out the noise around me and focus. I love that. What do you listen to on the on the headphones then? Everything. I mean, I have a very eclectic taste in music. You know, it depends upon the mood. Sometimes I feel like listening to jazz and blues. Another time I'll be listening to classical music. Then I'll go to pop and you know I, I love international tunes so i listen to a lot of music which is a mix of spanish italian middle eastern music it doesn't really matter it's the the tunes and the 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 sort of yeah the the, the tunes that really make make it for me the music itself behind it yeah great and then in terms of how your family friends and your sort of colleagues, how, how would they describe what you do? Is there a difference between how your friends or your family, what do they think you do, basically? I think it depends upon who you ask, and some perhaps won't even know exactly what I do, but I think maybe two words will be problem solver, is how I would describe the work to, the, to them when I talk about the type of work I currently undertake, yeah. Great. And then do you have a, an essential desk item that you, you have to have on your desk? I keep my phone very close to me. There's a lot of information that's flying around constantly that I like to stay on top of. So that's always there by my side. And these days, given we spend so much time on Zoom calls, I keep my Jabra desk speakerphone next to me because wearing a headset for five hours or six hours a day becomes a bit tiring after a while. So um, having that next to me makes it really much easier. And then we, we spoke about this briefly, or you mentioned it, crypto NFTs. Do you dabble in that in that realm? Do you own any NFTs or do you trade at all? I haven't bought any NFTs yet, but I do hold a very tiny portion of a couple of cryptocurrencies. I think I was probably more afraid about losing money than anything else. But then I said, you know what, let's put some play money into it and see what happens, right? I've been looking at the space for a long time. But yeah, I think there was a, there's a lot of security issues in sort of the you know, mid-2010s when this started to become prevalent. You know, there were a few very famous hacks of Bitcoin exchanges, and that kind of put me off that. But, you know, now I think things are better, so a bit more willing to do it. But, uh, yeah, no NFTs yet. Hope to uh, get, get into some of that soon. Of course. Have you read any good books lately, or have you seen any good shows that have inspired you? Yeah, one book which I came across recently, it's called Kings of Shanghai. A fantastic book about 
two families that really shaped modern Hong Kong and, and Shanghai. And these were two families, Jewish families from Iraq, of all places. I had no idea that migrated out of the country via India and established businesses in those two locations and survived all kinds of challenges. And it's a great story about resilience. And I definitely uh, recommend that as a, as a book to read up. I will look into it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Joseph. That brings us uh, to the end of the show. You've been a wonderful guest. I've loved interviewing you. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Greg. It was absolutely my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another show here at CEO.Digital. As always, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to check out the next uh, set of guests that we've got coming. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.